I want to have you join me in saying welcome to Zoomers on the count of three. One, two, three. Welcome Zoomers! Hallelujah, praise God. Good to see each and every one of you. You kind of, I'm just creeping into the picture there. If you just, you might want to turn that just an ever so slightly. I want to say, um, want to apologize to begins a great start to a message, okay? Um, but in, in, I thought about trying to get this into three messages, it won't go. I thought of trying to get into one message, it didn't go. So this, to, in order to complete this very important teaching, this is going to be slightly longer uh, than normal. And I do apologize, I don't normally preach for this long, but I will try and not dump down any rabbit holes. Okay, praise God. I just want to do a very, very basic recap, because this is the subject we started on apostasy um, a couple of weeks back, and um, I, I realized that you can't really identify an apostate from what I told you just in the first setting, so we're going to finish that, and then uh, Julia had some questions right at the end, and which were really wonderful questions, which I hope to answer this morning. So um, just a very brief uh, recap, biblical teaching is not entertain us but here to change us. We're not here to tickle ears, but to change hearts and minds. So Dr. Missler's summary of the book of Jude, he said it could be subtitled The Acts of the Apostates, as the book of Acts was the Acts of the Apostles in the beginning of the church age, so the book of Jude is the Acts of the Apostates at the end of the church age. Who are the apostates? Well, they are false teachers, false prophets, and false brethren. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They creep into the church with their lies and deception. You don't recognize them at first because they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And Jude starts out by wanting to write a letter to the church about the common salvation that we have. But he, he feels impressed by the Holy Spirit. He feels like there's an emergency taking place. And he feels that he must speak about standing up and fighting or contending for the faith. Uh, we must contend with the world's invasion of the church. Uh, we must fight back. A better terminology for that would be to stand up to contend. We oppose the matter in love. How many of you know that when Christians oppose something, we've got to do it in a spirit of love? And that's really important. And so uh, whatever we, we do when we oppose, we oppose in love this morning. So that's really what, the, what the, the book of Jude's about. Dr. Smith puts it this way. He summarizes uh, the, the book of Jude. He says, we are contending for the faith whenever we stand up in love against immorality. That's really what contending for the faith is all about. Standing up in love and speaking out against immorality. Well, when we finished the, 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 uh, the, the book of Jude last time, we, uh, we, we kind of finished on verse 7. And so I'm going to pick it up from there and we're going to move through that. Jude chapter 1, it's the, the final book before the, the book of Revelation. It says this, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities uh, about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange set flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. If we stop and we think about what was happening in Sodom, we understand what was taking place. What was the sin of Sodom? It was the sin, it was sexual sin, and specifically it was the sin of homosexuality. And they had brazen demand of the people in that place who wanted to be allowed to continue in that sin. They saw nothing wrong with it. 
If you paraphrase Genesis, uh, Genesis uh, 19 and verse 5, it says, Bring those men out, speaking about the angels that, that came to Lot's house. They said, Bring those men out so that we can have our way with them. Other versions say that we can have sex with them. Um, and um, so that's what was happening. Um, so that we can do what they want to do with them. Dr. Randall Smith uh, is saying in the context of Jude, these men are creeping in unawares into the church and spreading under grace and license what message specifically. Well, we understand from Genesis chapter 9 that they want to license as correct the message of homosexuality. You see? So the apostates under grace want to and license are asking for gay churches. Yeah. Isn't it? That's amazing. That's right in the Bible, and it's right there in Scripture. You read it for yourself, you, you can see that they're asking uh, for gay churches. They want the true church to accept them and tolerate them, and it's right here in the Bible. The apostates want to do what they want to do, and we're supposed to tolerate and accept it. The whole issue of gender identity is also wrapped up in here. They have an anatomy of a male, but they decide that they, they are female so that they can go into the, the ladies' bathrooms. They're doing what they want to do, just like they did in the days of Sodom. Forget the fact that God made them male. Listen, please hear me clearly. I don't have a problem with this. If the whole nation wants to accept that as a lifestyle, I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem when the church of the Lord Jesus Christ accepts that. We are called out of the world. We are called out to be different. And that's what God's calling the church. I have a problem with those who want to redefine the church and the teachings of Scripture. That's when I have a problem with this issue. So why is the church silent on the book of Jude when it's such a contemporary uh, 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 thing that's happening in the world today? This is the answer. This is how we are to respond in love. And I want to stress, we, we are to love these people. We are to respect them as God's creation. But we need to tell them the same as we need to tell anybody who is involved in a sinful lifestyle that what God, that what God says they are doing wrong. But speak to them in love and with respect and with dignity. We are not out to hurt people. We are out to tell them what God has told them. And so it's very important that as Christians, we always contend for the faith in love. So we love people, we respect people, but we tell them that God says that that is wrong. You know, the truth is that we none of us, are, are sin-free. We all have sin, isn't it? We are, we are all sinners, and that's why we've got to love one another. We've got to be gracious. Your sin might be not the same as my sin, and my sin might not be the same as anybody else's sin, but we are all sinners, and we all need God's grace, love, and mercy. And so we've got to tell people in a spirit of love that, hey, this, God says this is wrong, and God judged the nation of Sodom and Gomorrah because they were involved in wrongdoing. And so... Uh, it's really important that uh, it's not loving not to speak out and share this message. Because this is a message that the world and the church in particular definitely needs to hear today. It's a very contemporary message. The problem is that there are not many churches contending for the faith. Standing up about the ungodly culture that's seeking to influence the church. How many of you know that the church is becoming more and more worldly? 
And God is separating those who are going to walk down and, and serve Him their way from those who are going to serve Him His way. That's what God is doing in the church today. And so, you know, the, the, the church is, is compromising in so many areas and people are hardly contending for the faith. And that's why I think Jesus says in, in Luke chapter 8 and verse 18, says, Will I find faith in the earth when I return? Because he understands that the churches are compromising and, and going, becoming very worldly. And I, I, the question that floats around in my mind is, how far will the church capitulate? We have to be loving and we have to be kind, but we need to stand up for the truth. We need, we're not here to pr- promote our own thoughts. We are here to proclaim the word of the Lord. Can you say amen? Amen. So, I want you to listen. Before the gay community managed to change the definition of sodomy, homosexuals were known as sodomites, those who uh, go after strange flesh. And so that that, that has very uh, fearful overtones because God actually judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the the homosexual community were very um, keen to change uh, uh, the the, the conversation in public. And and so they, they called themselves gays or homosexuals. Because it's like one step removed from the fact that God actually judged the Sodomites. You know, it's very important that we, we understand it. Um, okay, if you've got your heart pills, take them now. Okay. <laughs> because, uh, you know, this is church for grown-ups. What we're going to discuss now is church for grown-ups. In fact, uh, it's really important we understand what's going on in, in, this, uh, in, in this setting. Um, you see, they, the, the, the uh, cities of Sodom had given themselves over to all kinds of fornication. And it's not the, the normal Greek word, pornea. In fact, this word uh, that, that's used is ekpornuo. And ekpornuo means to indulge in unlawful lust. Um, and if you think about it, unlawful lust is a real uh, definition of immorality. It would cover things like kinky sex. Oh, did I say that in church? Um, but it would include things like homosexuality, adultery, fornication, living in sin, pornography, other kinds of sexual perversion are all unlawful lusts. And it's the definition of immorality. And this was the cancer that, that appeared in Lot's day. And like a surgeon, God removed that so that it didn't uh, spread. And it remains as a warning for all those who lead an immoral life. Moving on, I I just want to say a couple of things before I leave that subject. and uh, Just say that Dr. Jeffers says that all sexual activity, all sexual activity is a choice. If you think about it, nobody puts a gun to your head and forces you to have sex with anyone. We all choose who we have sex with. Inclination, however, is another, is another story completely, and we won't have time to go into that. But all sex is a choice. People will turn around and say, but I was born that way. And I love Dr. Rogers' response. He says, yes, we were. We were all born sinners. We were all born with a sin nature. We all have things that we have to contend with in our life. All things, the, the, the things that are in our lives that God has prohibited us from going down. Because how many know God has a better plan for us? And if we will do God's way, we will find that it's a better plan. So Dr. Rogers says that, you know, we were all born sinners. None of us are holier than thou, you know. But we must all overcome our wrong cravings and desires. We must resist them. 
And if we don't, judgment is not far behind. God makes the way of the transgressor hard, Proverbs 13, 15 says. You know why he does that? It's an act of love. God makes the way of the transgressors hard so that they realize, hey man, I, I can't keep on going down this road. This is, this is getting too hard. And so they turn. And that's the whole purpose of God making. It's an act of God's love. He's showing them that they, they are going down the wrong route. Okay. So let's go to verse 8 as we're carrying through our study uh, in, in, in the book of Jude. Okay. Jude 1.8 says, These false teachers carelessly go on right on living their evil, immoral, and degrading uh, lives, sorry, degrading their bodies and laughing at those in authority over them, even scoffing at the glorious ones. Is this not happening in the church today? Very, very relevant. It hardly needs any explanation except to say that the glorious ones are the spiritual powers and authorities. They take no notice of what God has said. Um, they take no notice of what the prophets have said. And they carry on doing what they are wanting to do. So, we got to verse 9, and here we're going to change the subject completely uh, and, and look at this question of verse 9. And uh, it, let me say from the outset, this is not a, a verse to do with spiritual warfare, although it appears to be at, at first glance. Jude chapter 1 and verse 9 says this, Yet Michael, one of the mightiest angels uh, when arguing with Satan about the body of Moses, did not dare to even accuse Satan or jeer at him, but simply said, The Lord rebuke you. Well, the question naturally arises, man, you know, if uh, uh, the mightiest archangel does not want to rebuke the devil, should we be trying to bind the devil? You know, it's some people, I was listening to doing some research on, on YouTube, and I saw a, a, a minister of the gospel stand up and say, I don't want to take on any archangels. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And his whole demeanor was one of, of fear. And he said, I am just not going down that road. Well, let's, let's explore what's actually going on here. And I think you'll see that it's a very different thing. So it's a good question. Should we be trying to uh, bind the devil if, if archangels can't do it, the archangel Michael can't do it? Then uh, what, what's going on here? An archangel, Michael, is a warring angel. He's a warrior angel. He's God's Rambo. I like that. You know? When you're in trouble, call for Michael. He's God's Rambo. He comes in and he's war every time his name appears in scripture, he's always fighting with somebody or other. You know? In, here in Jude, he's fighting with the devil. In Revelations twelve, he's fighting with the devil. Then in the book of Daniel, he's fighting with the Prince of Persia. He is a warrior angel and he's there uh, and to to help us. Did you know that the name Michael actually means one who is like God. Hmm, interesting. And so, Michael, the one who is like God, is contending with the devil over the body of Moses. That's what we just read in verse 9. And so, that, that word contend. Folks, I tell you, you have to go back into the original language if you really want to understand what the scripture is teaching. But if you go back into uh, the, the original Greek, that word contending is, is the Greek word diakrino. And diakrina actually means to contend, to oppose, to clash, or to strive. And so you get this picture of uh, conflict that's taking place when, when you use the word diakrina. And so uh, you, know, you have to ask yourself the question, 
Well, why on earth would the devil want the body of Moses? And we need to come up with an explanation for that. And I hope I've got one for you. Well, he was dead. Yeah, but Moses, Moses is actually dead. In, in verse 9, they're contending over the body of Moses. And if we carry on, we'll, we'll see uh, that I believe that the devil was trying to uh, set up the, the church, set up believers, uh, and getting them to worship Moses' dead body. Set up a shrine to enslave them and to entrap them into a religious tradition and get their eyes of God. So he wanted to. Uh, uh, do you remember that that happened before when Moses created the, the brazen serpent and anybody who was bitten by the snake, they just had to look at the ashtan and they were healed. And so in time, Israel began to worship the, the, the ashtan, the brazen serpent. They, they would burn incense to it and they said, Oh, this is the thing that healed us. No, it wasn't. It was God who was healing. And I think that that's what the devil wanted to do with the body of Moses to use it as a snare. Do you remember, if, you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament story of Elijah, when he died, they, they buried him, and there, there, was, an, there was an occasion uh, when they, they were coming along, and they were going to bury a friend, and they were passing Elijah's grave, and they saw a community of bandits, and being really good friends, they thought, no, we, we can't handle this, we're going to get robbed and murdered, and they threw their friend into Elijah's grave, and when he touched the bones... Elijah, Elijah. Elijah went straight up to heaven. Sorry. <laughs> Wrong team. <laughs> well done. I'm just checking to see who was listening. <laughs> Praise God. So, uh, he, when he touched the bones, he was uh, resurrected, you know. And I think that you could see that, that uh, as a result of that, the devil was banking, hey, if there's power in those bones, there's going to be a lot more power in Moses' bones because he was a greater prophet, did many more miracles, and probably is the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And so he th- I think I can get him to worship uh, um, the, the people um, and the shrine or, or do something like that. Maybe the other reason that the devil wanted the body of Moses is that uh, he thought he had a claim on Moses because Moses actually murdered somebody, remember, back in the land of Egypt? And so he thought, maybe, I, you know, I, I, he, Moses killed the Egyptian because he was fighting with an Israeli, and he went to help, and the guy died. But the point I really want to get to is in, in answer to Julia's question, you know, uh, Michael would not bring a railing accusation against the devil, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So Michael is contending. He is disputing with the devil. And I, I think in, in that fight, I, I don't know about you, but if I'm fighting with the devil, my, my natural inclination would be to say, Devil, you go to hell. I've had enough of you. Amen? Now, I, think we, I, think, yeah, I think we've even told the devil once or twice to go to hell ourselves. <laughs> but, you know, I think that that's what, what, what uh, we, our natural inclination would be. But if we look at the original Greek construction, we see a very different picture begins to emerge. It's, it's this railing accusation of the two key words to understand what's going on here. And that word railing actually uh, is the Greek word blasphemia where we get our English word blasphemy from. And that simply means evil speaking. And, and the second word that we need to understand uh, is the, the accusation, the railing accusation. Blasphemia, uh, crisis, 
Increases means to, to, uh, to judge, to damn, or to condemn. And so that's really what it means, to judge, to damn, or to condemn. So when we understand it, Michael, the one who is like God, says to the devil, I will not speak evil of you, I will not blaspheme, I will not condemn you, judge you, or damn you to hell. That's the Lord's job. It's really speaking about the devil's final judgment, where he's going to end up in the lake of fire. That's what's happening in, in, in verse 9. It's not a, it's not a, a, a case of um, spiritual warfare. It's about the final judgment. Remember the, the reason that the, the devil fell was he wanted to be like God and step into God's shoes. Michael said, hey, I saw what happened to you, mate. I'm not stepping into those shoes. The Lord rebuke you, you know. The Lord condemn you to hell and judge you. So Mark, Michael is saying, I will not damn you to hell. God will. Because that's God's prerogative. That's His domain. He alone has the authority to damn people to hell. And Michael is saying, I will not step into that realm. The Lord rebuke you. So it has, a question, Robbie. Sorry, yeah? just, um, so if this is not about spiritual warfare, um, which it appears not to be, obviously, but then, um, I mean, obviously we do say, Satan, I rebuke you, or whatever. I bind you. Yeah. I'm going to answer that question. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to. Uh, uh, yes, I'm going to answer that in, in a few seconds. Okay. So, um, yeah, <laughs> that's great. It's great to have questions like that. Yeah, it's a great topic. You know? So, uh, so this word "crisis" means to damn, to judge, or to condemn to hell. And and uh, uh, Michael is saying, "I'm not going to do that. That's God's domain. That's God's prerogative. He is going to damn you to hell and and to eternal judgment, the lake of fire." So, we need to understand our place in the whole concept of spiritual warfare. Did you know that we, the church, the believers, are going to judge angels? And you can read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 3. Remember, we are the ones in authority. It kind of gets a little bit confusing when you read Psalm 8, when it says that God has made us little lower than the angels. You think, how can that be? But that's not actually a good translation, because the word angel in Hebrew is really is translated messenger, uh, angelos. And, uh, but the word that they have translated as angel is the uh, Hebrew word Elohim. And Elohim is one of the names of God. So what that verse, Psalm 8, is actually saying is that God has made us not a little lower than the angels, but a little lower than God himself. And we will judge angels. That's our role. And, and we're going to see that. And in fact, I, I want to draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. And I've chosen the amplified version because it explains it so beautifully and so clearly. It says, are not the angels all ministering spirits, servants, sent out in the service of God for the assistance of those who are to inherit salvation? Wow. Isn't that clear? Who are those that are inheriting salvation? Is there anybody here inheriting salvation? Can you say amen? Amen. So, so the angels are sent out to help us, to minister to us, and we will ultimately sit in judgment of, of, of the angels according to 1 Corinthians chapter 20, uh, 6 and verse 3. So, in Christ, it's not a problem for the born-again, spirit-filled believer to rebuke the devil. 
Not a problem at all. We can do that. But don't try and do this in your own strength. And especially if you are not saved, you are asking for trouble. Can I have an amen? You need to be born again and spirit-filled if you're going to take on the prince of darkness. The Bible says in, in 1 John 3, 8, it says, For this purpose was the Son of God manifested, that's why He came, to destroy the works of the devil. You see, the devil is not the agent that he's was. He's not the force that he was. God, Jesus, has dealt with the devil and has humbled him and has, has overcome the devil. And, and because he's vanquished the devil and, and defeated him, now God says to you and I, He says, now you can take on the devil because he's now defeated and I have broken the power of the devil. Do you remember what he says in Luke uh, ten nineteen? Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Remember when, when we were looking at the teaching on that word, behold? And I, I'm sure you all remember it, but I won't ask you to stand up and repeat it. But behold means to look and learn. Remember there's something remarkable or impressive here. That's what the word behold means. So what does it say? Behold, there's something I want you to learn. There's something remarkable, impressive that I want you to get here. I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Who is the serpent in scripture? The devil, absolutely. Who are the scorpions? The demons, absolutely. Okay. So what, we, what are we to learn here? What's remarkable and impressive? That all power over the enemy, over the devil, and over the demons has been given to the born-again, spirit-filled believer. That's the incredible truth that we to hold. We don't need to be afraid of the archangel like that minister on YouTube. He doesn't understand his authority in Christ. I've cast the devil out of many people, especially when I was in Africa. I contended with the devil almost on a weekly basis. Absolutely. But we, we, have, we have that authority. Yes, they're there to minister. Perhaps I could ask you to leave your questions until the yes, end, I'm sure. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll be ending up going down. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that, guys. And so that's the, the, the lesson that we learn, that we have all power and authority in Christ. We can even take on the devil and every demon in hell. We don't need to be afraid of the devil and archangels and, and the rest of it because we will judge them. Now, to round this off, I want to deal with the, the next thing that the Bible or the book of Jude deals with uh, about the apostates. So that we get a very clear picture that emerges about apostasy and who the apostates are. Remember when we, when we started this subject a couple of weeks ago, uh, we saw that in verse 5. An apostate was somebody who does not trust and obey God. Amen? An apostate is somebody who does not trust and obey God. Now we get some more information about these apostates in verse 11. And I'm reading it from the Living Bible. It says, Woe unto them, for they follow the example of Cain, who killed his brother. And like Balaam, they will do anything for money. And like Korah, they have disobeyed God and will die under his curse. So there are three people that are mentioned here as examples of apostates. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And their, li their, their lives are really an example for us of what not to do. Cain and Abel, of course, were, were, um, the, were brothers um, of Adam and Eve. And uh, they, they, they also, Cain killed Abel. And it, it was the first murder recorded in the scriptures. 
But both brothers' lives um, have something to teach us. And we can learn something quite incredible from, from these different lives. And it really all starts out with an offering that was made in Genesis 4. And we, we will come and read that, but I want to make some preliminary remarks before that so that it will help you understand what's going on. Uh, we, we see from Genesis chapter 4 that uh, Cain uh, brought a, a blood sacrifice. I mean, Abel, I beg your pardon, brought a, a blood sacrifice. And Cain brought the works of his hands. When we read in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, we, we're given some additional information. It says, by faith, this is verse 4, 11, 4, by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Let me just read that once more and see if you can pick up on, on a nuance. By faith, Abel brought a blood sacrifice. He offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. How does faith come? Hearing the word of God. Romans 10 says, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So if Cain offered a blood sacrifice by faith, we deduce that God spoke the gospel to both Cain and Abel. Otherwise they could never have offered it by faith. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So God proclaimed the gospel to both uh, Cain and Abel. And so uh, we deduce from that, that that Cain heard and they were told all about the blood sacrifice, the atonement by God, the principle of substitutionary sacrifice, the plan of salvation. God explained it to both of them. Now let's come back to Genesis chapter 4 where the story really takes root. Genesis chapter 4 verses 3 and 5. At the harvest time, Cain brought the Lord a gift of his farm produce. And Abel brought the fatty cuts of meat from his best lambs and presented them to the Lord. And the Lord accepted Abel's offering, but not Cain's. This made Cain both dejected and very angry, and his face grew dark with fury. What's going on here? Well, it's very clear. Cain has rejected the gospel. He wants to serve God on his own terms. He's rejected the atonement. He's rejected the blood sacrifice. He wants to serve God his way. And folks, there are millions, of multiplied millions, who have been to church of people who want to serve God their own way. They've turned away from the blood. They've turned away from Christ because they want to serve God on their terms. Cain was the first self-righteous individual in the scripture. He was religious because he had some kind of relationship with God because God explained the gospel to him. But he, he was a rebel at heart and he decided not to trust and obey the Lord. He would do things his way. He wanted no part of the atonement, no part of the blood covenant. No part of the blood of the Lamb. Years later, Solomon actually spoke about this kind of uh, thing. He said, in, in Proverbs 14, 12, he says, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end of, of that is death. So, uh, if we start to do things our own way, it will lead to death. And, and Solomon's warning, and we see exactly, that's exactly what happened um, to, um, to Abel and, and Cain. Cain was cut off from God as a result of this. God uh, rejected uh, Cain's self-righteous attitude because he was only willing to serve God 
on His terms. How many of you know? You can't do that. God is the Lord and He sets the rules. And we are to follow. And God says, if you follow me, I will bless you. I will open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing upon you that you cannot contain. God wants to bless us. But when we are independent and think, I know better, I'm going to do my own. How many know that he makes the way of the transgressor heart? And so, it's very important. He was self-righteous. He was religious. And apostasy always leads to death. Sometimes physical and sometimes spiritual, but it always leads to death. Jude is saying the mark of an apostate is a self-righteous man, a spiritual man who wants to serve God on his own terms. They are in rebellion. And so that's what we deduce from, from the life of Cain and Abel, that, uh, that uh, uh, Cain was, uh, was the evil one and tried to do things his way, and God blessed Abel. Okay, let's let let's look now at the next. Now we're getting into some exciting stuff. I really enjoyed putting this together. So I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. I want to talk about Balaam. Remember the three guys, Cain uh, and Balaam and Korah. Well, we're now going to look at uh, Balaam. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like to turn to Numbers 22, and we're going to read uh, verses 4 through 8. And I'm reading it from the NIV because this is actually clearer. It says this: Numbers 22 and verse 4 and 8. So Balak, the son of Pezor, uh, who was the king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Peroth. They're wonderful names, aren't they? <laughs> uh, near the river and his native land. Balak uh, said, A people has come out of Egypt, and we know that that was Israel. And they have come to cover the face of the land, have settled next to me. Verse 6. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. For I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. And the elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee of divination, the fee of witchcraft. And when they came to Balaam, they told him that what Balak had said. Now notice verse 8. Spend the night here, Balaam, the prophet of God, says to them, and I will bring you back the answer that the Lord gives me. So the Moabite princes stayed with him. You know, if you look at the life of Balaam, he was once a mighty prophet of God. Some of the, the prophecy that, uh, that he gives of Christ's return, one of the most beautiful prophecies in Scripture. And, and you know, he, he was known even by his enemies that, you know, if Balaam blessed you, you were blessed. If Balaam cursed you, you yeah, over. And so he was known as an anointed man of God. And uh, it was uh, very important. Now, Balaam was a mighty prophet of God. But he let his lusts lead him away from the Lord. He gave into the flesh. How many people has that happened to that come to church? There are so many that people, they start out well. They love the Lord, but they never deal with the sin that's in their own lives. And as a result of that, they don't go the distance. How many to know to go the distance, you must deal with your own sin? Can I have an amen? amen. And it is hard, but we have to do that. And that's one of the things that God does. So, many Christians have been destroyed because they never dealt with their own sin and their lives. God's people came out of Egypt, and the enemy wants the, the, the prophet to curse them for money. Balak 
stated aim. He says, I want to see them defeated and driven out and dispossessed of the land. How many know that was the land that God gave to the children of Israel? That was God's inheritance for them. And here's this man saying, hey, I want you to curse them so that I can defeat them and drive them out of the land and dispossess them. Can you see that this is not the will of God? It should be blatantly obvious to all of them. Would you need to pray about this? I don't think so. I don't. So why on earth does this mighty prophet of God say to, to the, the Moabite princes, the enemies of Israel, let me go and seek God on this issue. He should have said to them, get out. That's God's inheritance. I have nothing to do with you. But he didn't. You know, he said, I'll go and pray about this. Why does he need to pray about this? Because he is starting to love the things of the world more than the things of God. Man, so many of us have been uh, trapped by that. We need to be very uh, vigilant that we don't go down that road. You know, his love for money means he'll compromise his message for cash. That's what he is actually going to do. And the Bible says it's the love of money which is the root of all evil. It's, the, it's not money, it's the love of money. People who love money will do anything for money. Murders are committed, thievery, anything you care to know. It's the love of money is the root of all evil. And here we see Balaam uh, becomes a man who is willing to compromise his beliefs for cash. He says, I'll go and pray about it. You know, uh, It really becomes, at this point, a prophet for hire. The love of money is corrupting him and perverting his message. And I want to say to you today, there are pulpits and pastors for hire. There are pulpits and pastors for hire today. There are people who are standing in the pulpit who won't say what God has said in His Word for fear that they will lose popularity, power, prestige. They'll even lose their pay because they know that if the people go, their money goes with them. And so they remain silent about what God has said. And they're as much as an apostate as Korah because they won't tell the truth about what God has said. Sometimes what God asks us to do is not easy. It's not popular, but it's right. And we need to be those who do that. You see... The other flip side of that same coin is that there are others, uh, like Korah, who th- seem to make out that prosperity is the only part of the gospel that needs to be preached. And every message they preach is about money. It's about giving. And that's all they can ever talk about. I once went to a church for about four months, and every message was about that. Ah, I'm out here. I'm, that's all this guy can talk about. You know, so, Jude 11.1 1 says, They ran greedily after the, the era of Balaam for reward. All they were interested in is the money. How many people have been accused the church and said, All the church wants is your money. Baloney! The, the apostates want your money. But the true church is there to serve, to love, and to give away what they have. Can you say amen? Amen. You see, there's a very big difference. Okay. And there are pulpits for hire that, uh, that are running after money, just like Balaam did. I want to say to you, and I believe this with all my heart, there's nothing like money to test the heart of a man. Nothing. Nothing like money to test what's going on in your life. You show me your checkbook, what you spend your money in, and I'll show you what you love. It's very easy to do. There's nothing like money to test the heart of a man. You know, 
uh, when, when I was in Africa, a very, very rich man, uh, he owned, literally owned, at least 50% of all gold mines in Mozambique. All the national mines were his. And uh, he owned many, many mines in Rhodesia and Zimbabwe and, and much property. And he came up to me one day and he said, Rob, I, I, I want to build you a church. He said, you, you can buy or build any church you like. And I want to say to you, money is no object. I thought, all well, my Christmases are coming once. You know, this is wonderful. He said, I've only got one stipulation. I said, okay, what's that? I'm, I'm, I'm interested. He said, I want to name the church. I thought, that sounds reasonable. And then I walked away and I felt that pricking in my spirit. I just felt God would not let me rest. And I thought, what's going on here? And, uh, you know, I thought, I, I don't know what's going on here. No? He said, money's no object. You, you can design any kind of church you want. I just want to name it. And then it dawned on me. I knew that if I accepted his offer, he would not stop asking for things because I would be in his debt. What this man was really after was control of the church. And if I had accepted that offer, I would have been a board minister. So I politely declined and said, no, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't do that. It was very strange. You know, this man was incredibly disappointed. But I wasn't. I felt that I'd been set free. He was the one going around with a long face. And, and, and I thought about it. I thought, why is he upset? And then it dawned on me. It was suddenly because he'd found something that his money couldn't buy. And that's why he was depressed. You know, God's church is not for sale to anyone for any price, for any reason. Can I have an amen? amen. And so, we, we, otherwise we become as bad as Korah. Um, so an apostate does not trust and obey God, wants to do what they want to do, especially sexually. They are self-righteous and rebellious. They are greedy for money and will compromise for cash. The last example that I want to share with you this morning is the example of Korah. And this is a fascinating story, uh, and I wish we had more time. I'm going to go quickly. Okay. So the Levites were selected by God to play minor roles in the, in, in the temple, like uh, playing the music, opening and closing the gates, standing on guard to make sure everything was okay. But their main job was they were responsible for, for packing up the, 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 the tabernacle in the wilderness and transporting it and then rebuilding it when they reached their next destination. That was their main task. The, the most sacred task, uh, that of um, establishing the... Um, the, the, the sacrifices, that was for the, the Kohenim, that was for the priests, it was reserved entirely for them. And um, so you know uh, how they, all the priests were the descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother. If you've got time, when you get home, read chapters uh, 16 and 17 of Numbers, and I think you'll find it fascinating. I'm going to pick out the highlights. Uh, verse 1 says, Now Korah, the son of Ezar, uh, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and the sons of On, the sons of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men. I wish they had nice names. I feel sorry for them. Okay. Uh, they rose up before Moses uh, with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. So, 
Korah goes around and he seduces the people in, in the church. This is the church in the wilderness. And he's looking for the most powerful, the most influential uh, members of the congregation. Because there's going to be a trouble ahead. There's going to be rebellion in the air. Korah guarantees the most powerful, most popular, most famous people, uh, the most men of influence. I want to tell you, numbers are not always a necessary a sign that that's right. You know, look at the spies when they were going into the promised land. Everybody's here. You know, numbers are not always a good indication. And here's, here's another classic example. And so uh, there, there's rebellion in the air. And they've gathered all these powerful people. Look at verse 3. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, You take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy. And every one of them, and the Lord is amongst them. Wherefore then lift you up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. You know what they were saying there? They were saying, Moses and Aaron, you proud, you are arrogant. The whole congregation is holy. God can use any single one of them that he chooses. And you're just promoting uh, Aaron because he's part of your family. That's nepotism. That's that you want all the power con- uh, controlled by you and Aaron. So, basically... They were saying, you know, we, uh, who do you think you are to uh, appointing these priests? We have just as much right to be priests as anyone else. So what's happening here? There is a power struggle going on in the church in the wilderness. And I want to tell you, every time that there's a power struggle in the church, it's over one issue. Ultimately, it's who controls the church. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So, uh, so... There's a power struggle going on. The apostates never leave quietly. Listen to what they say. They murmur, they grumble, and they complain. They criticize, and they cause discontent and division in the church. Watch out when that starts to happen in a fellowship. You know, they, they, uh, you need to separate yourself from the, the, that, that kind of fellowship because judgment is about to follow. So the real hallmark of an apostate is rebellion against spiritual authority. Go down to verse 14 of number 16. Moses sends for Korah and asks them to come to a meeting. He says, no, we'll not come. So there's defiance and there's mutiny and there's insurrection in the air. That's what's happening. There's a total disrespect for Moses' authority to lead. They say, we're just as spiritual as you are. Who do you think you are to start ordering us around? Verse 16, and Moses said to Korah, come here tomorrow before the Lord with all your friends and Aaron will be here too. Then, verse 19, meanwhile, this is what they do, Korah had stirred up the entire nation against Moses and Aaron and they all assembled to watch. This is a power, This is going to be a major showdown. Now, all the most powerful guys are there. This is the showdown. I see trouble here. And Moses says, and he says this in, in verse 30, But if the Lord brings about something totally new, speaking about the judgment of Korah, and the earth opens up its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the grave, then you will know that these men, and mark these words in your Bible, have treated the Lord with contempt. The Amplified Version says they provoked, spurned, and despised the Lord. Korah and his cronies were thinking they were rebelling against Moses and Aaron. But God took it personally. And he says, you've despised me. That's very strong language, isn't it? And so, um, 
You know, listen carefully. God appoints spiritual authority. Can you say amen? Amen. See, when God opened up the ground and Korah and all, all his cronies, those 250 men, were swallowed up alive, everything was gone. It vindicated Moses' ministry. He said, Moses is the man I've appointed. You guys that are trying to rebel, gone, taken out. You're no longer going to be around to, to influence. And it also vindicated the ministry or the priesthood of Aaron. I like what Dr. Duncan III says. He says, uh, because there's also a broader significance here for you and me. One of the greatest lessons to emerge from number 17 is that all true ministry is appointed by God. So, let me just share with you. This is something I was taught when I was in the congregation, and I want to share it with you. Never, ever rebel against those who stand in God's office. Never do. Never ever rebel against those who stand in God's office. There must be a respect for God's office. Amen? Amen. So don't murmur, don't complain, don't try and overthrow them like Korah did. Why? Because the Bible makes it plain. Romans 13, 1 and 2, and we've got a couple of verses left. We'll be done in five minutes. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says, Everyone, how many is that? Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So what on earth do you do with an apostate leader? Exactly what I was thinking about. <laughs> well, I'm going to answer that question for you. You leave them to God to judge. Leave them to God to judge. Share your grievances with them. Maybe you can persuade them to, to leave there. But you know, it's been my experience that when people are entrenched and intransigent, they don't want to hear what you have to say. When they're apostate, they don't want to listen to the word of the Lord. So once you've shared your, your grievances with them, perhaps you'll change them. But if not, if he doesn't want to listen to you, Quickly and quietly walk away from that fellowship. Withdraw all support, all financial, all emotional, or spiritual support from that fellowship. Leave that fellowship and do not confront the leadership. Leave them to God, for God will surely judge them as surely as He judged Korah. Amen? Well, no, because God's people, if, if, if that leader is going to be judged by God, God's true people, God's true followers, find a church where they preach the, the, the scriptures. You know, so they're not lost, but that, that leader is going to be lost and be lost like Korah. So to finish, an apostate is someone who does not trust and obey God, who wants to do what they want to do, especially sexually, is self-righteous and rebellious, who's greedy for money and will compromise their principles for cash. They'll murmur and complain against spiritual authority. Steer clear from these people because judgment is abound to follow. I close with four things. Uh, sentences. How do we defend ourselves against apostasy? Check everything by the word of God. One. Two. Pray in tongues. Witness is the third thing. And walk in holiness. This is how we defend the faith. We speak to people in love and tell them where they're going wrong. Now, I close with this verse. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty.
majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. Amen. Amen.